I think it's time we blow this scene. Get everybody, get everybody and the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about Cowboy Bebop, the anime on Genreless. Hey everybody! Oh, I that is my least favorite anime song ever. I did not listen to it every single time I watch an episode. This podcast, you're no longer welcome here. Take your shit and go. <laughs> I, I did listen to it every single time for every episode we watched. I did not yes. listen to the closing song every single time. No, no. I just skipped straight like, to the the meat of the matter. Like literally, when um, they announced uh, the live action version, which we'll talk about another time, but when they announced live action, the only question I have was, "Are these the original things?" Because not, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I was, I was literally going to die on that hill. And they're like, "Nope, we're using Tank." I'm like, "Great, I'm in. Let's do it." There's no way you can replace Tank. That is integral no. to the show. Oh my god, so good! It's like the sixth cast member. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or seventh. Well, let me see. Spike, Faye, Jet. Ed, Ein, Bebop, Sep- yeah, seventh cast member, yeah. theme song. Yeah, like all that stuff we said about the music in Bubblegum Crisis, a hundred times that. I mean, there are a couple of shows I can think of where their theme is so integral to my understanding of the show. Um, Peace- Peacemaker is probably the only other one off the top of my head I can think of. Um, Peacemaker is so defined by that show in the intro to me. Um, but this was the one, this is the first show I ever watched of any kind, not just anime, any kind where I wanted to own a soundtrack because of this song. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't say that. The first show that I ever, the first thing I ever saw that I want to own the music to would be the 1977 Hobbit, which I went out and scrounged and found. Wow. Wow. That's the, the Rankin Bass one. Yeah. The, the first yeah. one that they did. Because they yeah, didn't do wow. the, I don't think they did the second one, did they? And they came no, back I don't think so. Third, and they came back for the third one. Yeah. It's that Bilbo that was, Baggins song. It, 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 it's one of those things, like, it is such a 70s soundtrack. But if you understand where it's coming from, it's actually really good. But it's very but eclectic. We're not here to talk about The Hobbit and the greatness of no. that soundtrack that everyone should go out and buy. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, we're here to talk about the second best soundtrack everyone should go out and buy. Out. I'm kidding. That's fine. (laughs) Um, So it is hard, actually, to talk about Cowboy Bebop because it is such a legendary show Mm -hmm. that is more about swagger and vibe than it is necessarily about the plot. Like, the plot always feels secondary. I know there's an underlined one that goes throughout the show. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's more about like instances and moments in these characters' lives. And it's not when they're at their peak either. It's sort of like after they've crested that hill and they're sort of on the decline, like the back half of their existence where we pick mm-hmm. up. And that is an interesting approach to take. I think one of the reasons maybe why it worked really well in America, because again, Bebop came out during that time we talked about last season of the peak late 90s or 2000s tape trading era, right, where things were just starting to come to uh, the U.S. And I was trying to kind of articulate why, there's lots of reasons why Bebop is great, but I think one of the reasons why it particularly got in my head, I was trying to find articulate it, and I actually found um, through another podcast, uh, they were talking about how uh, the Giver was marketed in the U.K., and they marketed it as a motion comic. Every month, you got your next issue, which was your next tape of the show. And so they went through that for a whole year and became like a, a maxi series of comics, but in tape form. And I think one of the reasons why Bebop works is because you're right. Each session is self-contained. Near the end, it gets a little muddier, but generally speaking, it, it's just an episode. It's a, it's a slice of life of these characters. And then as you're rewarded by viewing all of these episodes in order, or even 
roughly in order, you start to see the underlying threads that go through them, but it is structured a lot more like a Western comic book in that regard. It is, it is like, the, like the Armor Wars thing uh, or whatever, uh, other comics we've talked about, um, where uh, each one has a beginning, middle, and end, but also it's playing into larger threads. And so I think Bebop works well in that format as opposed to other anime, which either is purely episodic or tends to be heavily serialized. This is very much in the middle, and I think that all kind of combines in late nineties to being this kind of peak thing on top of all the other excellent stuff with the show as a whole. Absolutely. So I guess we should tell people why we decided to talk about the bebops instead of just going directly into season three. That is about romantic comedies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I have so many things to say about well, actually. Love action. <laughs> I think the movie I was bullshitting about, right? That tells you how much I care about it. Love action. Well, I, I, I'm just looking forward for when we have our talk about Friends, the the greatest sitcom of the 90s that ran for 10 seasons. Oh, my God. That I saw three episodes of. Um, All right. That's more than I've seen. That's three more well, than I've seen. <laughs> I was going out with someone that really liked Friends, and so I got trapped. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. One of the things is that we both enjoy the anime, and I think to some extent we both have thoughts about the live action series that mm-hmm. I won't say positive or negative until next episode. People come and listen and find out. But either way, it is incredibly yeah. genre defining um, in almost a moment uh, uh, in history and TV that helps redefine things. I think we're having delays here. Should we leave that in for folks to know that there was that weird hiccup to show our level of professionalism? Uh, we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. If, if you if you're listening to this, I left it in. There you go. <laughs> Shorter content. All right, um, you, you don't know if it exists till it's perceived. Uh, no. Um. So I was just agreeing with you that um. Uh. It was definitely a show that, in my mind, when I saw it, was like I didn't realize you could do this on TV, right? Um, like fantastical concepts wasn't. Unusual to me. I mean, I watched episodes about giant alien transforming robots that transposed a war from four million years ago onto Earth. I mean, it's not exactly a straightforward concept. Um, but this was such an interesting blend of what we call high concepts, i.e., there is a, a concept on the show you have to buy into, and character driven stuff combined with interesting and poignant dialogue and funny genuinely funny moments all working in concert and on top of that not being in a language that's native to me and still getting all of that uh uh, there there's definitely it's it's we talked in the last season a lot about um shows that didn't quite land hit the landing hit the mark uh, and so I know, I know one of the reasons when you talked about this, I wanted to do it too, is that it's just refreshing to look at a show that's just firing on all cylinders. And, and there are stuff that you can quibble about and maybe we'll get into them. Um, but also there's just, it's a show that rewards rewatching too, because you see new things and new details and you pick up new, new threads and undercurrents. It, it, it's very much a show that gives you exactly up to the line of what you need and never anything more. So it's very fast paced, it's efficient, but also you can find depth underneath of it as you peel away the layers. Hundred percent agree. And I guess rather than just heaping more and more praise on Cowboy Bebop for another forty minutes, we can at least peruse over the different sessions and maybe like touch on specific praise instead. Well, you know, It's, it's easy to find – actually, I take that back. It is hard to find a lo- as many negatives with Cowboy Bebop, even if I really wanted to. I could point out some like cultural things that would be insensitive and questionable. Sure. But then I put it in the context of when it was made and like the different cultures that it had to go through, which adds on to like that layer of complexity that it, they had to engage with. Because there's at least one historical fact that I'm going to mention in session three that I thought was astounding. Mm-hmm. But we're not at session three yet. Okay. Where's session one? Session one, Asteroid Blues. Your in-depth summary. 
Spike and Jet <laughs> kick off the series, attempting to apprehend Isomoff. No, no reference there whatsoever to a certain writer <laughs> no. who has stolen a synthetic, um, an entire supply of synthetic called Bloody Eye, that is equivalent of a mini super soldier serum. Mm-hmm. I think I brought Marvel back into that. That you inject into your eyeball, which is. <laughs> And it turns your eye kind of a reddish color. Hence, bloody eye. Right. That, that's your summary. I, Cowboy Bebop is so awesome. All of my summaries will be very short. <laughs> and that was part of my thing when I was sitting here trying to figure out how I want to summarize the show. It's less about that plot, but it's more about watching the characters move through the beats of it. Which I know most series you have people and they move through the plots and everything else, but this is almost specifically focused on the stylized way that they engage with what's going on around them. Like mm-hmm. even when they introduce Spike and Jet, they're aboard the ship, Jet fixing breakfast or, or a meal and saying it's like uh, beef and beans. And you instantly have Spike going, Do we have beef? And Jet still just talking about the beans. And like that is mm-hmm. funny. That's building their camaraderie almost instantly off the bat. Right, exactly. And one of the things that uh, the first episode does uh, that's interesting is that uh, it's we, – we, we've talked dismissively about Firefly, and, and it's, it, it is a show that invites uh, a comparison. But the only time I'm going to really bring it up is here because Firefly tried to paint this multicultural tapestry and, and kind of largely failed. Um, Camp Bebop does the same thing, but as opposed to using – Japanese culture as the base and then adding things on top of it, it uses American culture as the base, which is fascinating. It, it, it's very much written and structured like American fiction. I mean, even the name is, is it's juxtaposes two Amer- purely American things, cowboys and the, the music of bebop and shoves them together. So, I mean, it, it's a very strongly American coded show and it generally hits more than it misses on that front. Uh, so, yeah all the multicultural stuff that kind of comes in feels a little more organic because everything's being filtered through a lens that is not Japanese culture. And it's paced like a Western when you watch it. Yes. Mm -hmm. From like the slow movements of things that sort of transpire and how it, I'm not going to say tricks people, but how it sort of creates an illusion of speed is through the music that it injects at different points in time, Mm -hmm. which I found to be fascinating. Because even when Spike gets to a fight, Spike sort of dodges and moves around, but his movements aren't overly quick or exaggerated. They're like sort of a, a slow movement and then interacts with like precise motions and movements, which feels more Western because it's not about speed. It's about being on target and having that grit and gumption to get through things. Right. Um, Spike is an accomplished martial artist. We find that out in, more explicitly later on, but we even see that here. Um, but uh, um, his styles, you're right, are very much more loose, controlled movements rather than you know, fast-paced kinetic fighting. So it seems languid, even in fight scenes, but he's always in exactly the right place when he needs to be. So you definitely see the skill there, but he's very much the kind of guy who's like, goes through a fight with his hands in his pockets, at least style-wise, you know. So the 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 big crux of the episode, I guess I'll talk a little bit about the actual plot instead of how <laughs> awesome it is to watch, and is that you've got Asimov, and I'm not sure if they name the girlfriend, now that I think about it. I don't remember off the top of my head. I think they do, but the name is escaping me at the moment. And so they walk into this bar, and she appears to be pregnant. And sitting on the bar, they both order uh, drinks, and the bartender sort of gives her an eye because he sees what should be the kid and still serves him anyway. And then you go into the back with Asimov and the bartender, who's actually sort of a fixer, and he tries going to sell him bloody eye. And so before the transaction occurs, he says, I need to see that it's the bloody eye. And so Asimov takes it and you get this glimpse of how his entire world shifts before they get attacked. And you get mm-hmm. a chance to see how enhanced bloody eye makes him so fast. that he's sort of dodging bullets. He's just offhandedly beating down mobsters that come in to try to take back their supply of bloody, bloody eye, which is a great visual to watch as it sort of displays over the screen. And they have the unnamed girlfriend 
who sort of jumps behind the bar and you see that she's also a great shot sort of helping him out throughout the fight to show they're definitely more of a team dynamic, which is interesting. Having watched so much noir, she sort of has the vibes of a femme fatale, but she cares about Asimov instead of just using Asimov to get what she wants, which is to Mars and to get away from like this place. Right. Uh, Katarina is her name, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, again, it's one of the reasons why, like, it, already with the show, it's like it's setting up a certain amount of tropes, tropes that are um, familiar to, to for, for to multiple cultures, uh, uh, because Japan actually uh, has a, a pretty strong tradition of importing uh, American detective fiction uh, prior to this, so they're very familiar with those tropes as much as we are. And immediately, like you say, starting to subvert them to a degree. Uh, Katerina is is beautiful. She's enigmatic. She clearly has her own plans, but she doesn't immediately betray the person she's with, um, although she is playing a game. Uh, but what we realize is, is the game is not whether she's going to turn on Asimov. The game is the fact that she actually is the supply. Uh, uh, and... You know the the pregnancy thing is is a gag to be able to her ever hold all of the, blo- the um, bloody eye on her, uh, which is interesting because like you said, like the the show both tells you clues and then de- just deflects you, which is beautiful. Like the, the giving her a drink thing, um, the bartender obviously is suspicious, but she doesn't bat an eye and she's just drinking alcohol, so that's a pretty strong clue she's not actually pregnant. But then repeatedly, Asimov says things like, "I don't have it on me; it's not nearby. I, I have to go get it." Um, which we find out later is a lie. Uh, so <laughs> you, it's like you can't his... trust drug dealers, right? Exactly. I mean, so it's like <laughs> I know he's lying. I don't know which part of it is the lie, and it turns out that it's it's all of it. But the point is, is that you know, um, you're you're already kind of looking at the whole thing, going, who's telling the truth, who's lying, what what's going on here, what people are saying, and it's it's definitely doing that noir thing of saying things there, there's never direct conversation like you mentioned the um uh the beef and beans conversation um where like jet is you know spikes like hey is there beef and jets doesn't answer the question he says something else entirely that's a very noir setup and the, like the whole show is like this is like if you ask them a direct question they will almost never give you a direct answer uh that's just how this show works there's certain characters who circumvent that and they there for certain reasons and we'll talk about them but Generally speaking, that's just how people talk in this this world. And so everything has another meaning. And so you're constantly trying to find through. And the show also rewards you for that thought because if you you can kind of, if you're really paying attention, you can kind of anticipate some plot twists ahead of time. But generally speaking, they're pretty strong structure. Or in later episodes, they'll have a plot twist and then have a second one after that. So you see one but not the other, which is even better. Eventually, we have Spike who encounters because I'm not didn't be sure if he potentially tracked them because wow, uh, but he encounters Asimov in the bathroom after the atom after the aftermath of his first use of bloody eye mm-hmm. and sort of you think Asimov's gonna there's gonna be a fight in the bathroom, but there's not and Spike just says hey you should probably uh, turn to the faucet if you're gonna vomit doesn't mm-hmm. so doesn't closet and walks out and then he starts flirting with Katrina to sort of get like a sense of what's going on with them. And you're not even really sure if he knows that these are the people he's after until his conversation with Katrina changes and saying, so you're just trying to escape to Mars. You know that I don't want the small fry. I want like the, the big fish. Mm -hmm. And you get that thing that this entire thing that he's been doing, has been an act and he knows who's both of them are. And he was just trying to suss out the best way to capture them. Mm Mm-hmm. And it makes Spike interesting right away because, again, the tropes set us for, okay, this is the point where the protagonist beats the guy up to get information, and that doesn't happen. And then it's the, okay, this, this then this character is, in fact, the clueless investigator who doesn't know what's going on, but he does. And so each time you think you got a handle on Spike, he changes. And then he starts to settle into his form pretty quickly, but we don't quite know what that form is until after this episode, and I want to say arguably maybe another session. It's really around session three that he starts to we get him. He's a guy who honestly is a bit of a slacker. 
he, he there are reasons why he wants to take the path of least resistance, but he does do that. When the chips are down, he will do absolutely anything is necessary. But if he doesn't have to have a fight, he'd rather not do it. And it's like you can kind of sympathize with that. But it's it's an interesting inversion of the tropes we expect while still playing in the world that those tropes tell us to lay down. So it's 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 ah, so good. And at the same time, it, since he's flirting with Katrina, he this year's a weakness in Spike also is that he doesn't necessarily pay full attention to everything around him. And Asimov actually starts choking him and has a possibility of killing him. The only mm-hmm. reason he doesn't die in the first episode halfway through is <laughs> Katrina basically asks Asimov not to kill him. And they sort of escape together, which is another inversion because frequently the Fimpital would have the person kill whoever they need to to kill to move on, which then enable helps them enable to escape. Mm-hmm. Which by breaking this trope actually bites him in the ass later. Right. And, and like this is also even later. Where- oh, I, I was just going to mention that uh, um, Asimov also uh, later does play into the trope of the the jealous boyfriends uh, of like you know I, you know such confronting Katrina when they were escaping and, and talking about how, you know, you actually you know, really liked him. And she's like, no, no, no. I want to talk. I, 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 is that really true? I, I really want to go to Mars. And we're talking, I'm talking about what their lives could be on Mars. And again, the, the, the expectation is, oh, she's manipulating him, but it kind of plays like, no, I genuinely this guy started hitting on me and then you hit him. I didn't have time to really react because that's what we saw on the screen. So it's like, you actually don't know where she lands on this, which is which is interesting. And then you have Jet show up and Jet's been following the clues and everything else because that's more of Jet's personality. He tracks down all the clues. He for, sort of forms a case, if you will, to <laughs> then execute it. And Jet is the more proactive member of them as long as he thinks there is really money and just justification in doing something. Jet is absolutely the adult in the room in this whole show. And he kind of hates it. (laughs) (laughs) And we should probably get ready to move on to the next one, next session. But before we do, one of the most dynamic images of the entire show for me is when Katrina and Asimov are escaping the planet. Spike's in pursuit in his own jet fighter. And she kills Asimov, who is about to lose it with bloody eye. And then their ship gets blown up by security. And you mm-hmm. see her just shot into space. And like all the bloody eyes just sort of washes out of her form. Mm-hmm. As she, and she even says goodbye to Spike before she dies. Sort of whispers mm-hmm. this at him. Like that level of drama and that imagery is beautiful. It has stayed with me since the first time I saw it Mm -hmm. 20 plus years ago. Is that the episode that ends CU Space Cowboy or is that a different one? Yeah, that ends with this episode. Yeah, because that's the other thing is like um, uh, a lot of these shows will have a little bit in the bottom right corner in Japanese to say to be continued. Um, And this one... A does in English and B constantly changes them up. So it's usually some kind of phrase or witticism, but it is usually thematically tied to the episode, which is interesting. And this one is uh, CU Space Cowboy, which is probably one of the most iconic written lines. Any other comments or thoughts about this one before we move on? Uh, no, but I, I, I do agree that it was worth digging in this one a little deeper because so much of what the show is, is set up in episode one. This is one of those shows where there's so many shows where it's like, well, give it a few episodes before it goes. No, it's like, watch episode one. If you don't like this, you will not like the show. If you love this, you will love the show. It's, it's very clear. You can watch one episode and know what this show is going to be about. And it does that. And that is a brave step to take. And it worked Mm -hmm. out magnificently. Mm -hmm. All right. Session three, honky tonk women. With Ayn as a new companion, the crew of the Bebop cross paths with Faye Valentine, a wanted fugitive drowning in debt who is forced to act as a middle middle woman for an illegal transaction at a space station casino. I think, like many people when this first aired, Faye Valentine was one of my crushes growing up. 
I can't <laughs> lie. It yeah, is true. Yeah. I put it out into the world to know. I, I'm with you right there, man. Um, it's one of those characters that like, over time, I look back and it's like, yeah, she was a little sexualized. Um, you know, wearing skimpy outfits. Uh, uh, you could chalk it up to a degree of at the time. But one of the things that Faye does is that she is the actual femme fatale character we're expecting, except that she is, I don't say heroic, but she's the protagonist. So she's using her sexuality as a weapon explicitly. Uh, but also, that is not the only weapon she has, which is something I was a little worried about when we were watching it, but like, no, she, she's genuinely a cool character. Um, uh, and one of the things that I love about Faye is that, you know, she, she comes across as this, you know, attractive-looking woman and just has no inner monologue. She says absolutely what's on her mind all of the time, and it's amazing and hilarious. In a lot of ways. When I was watching it this time, I think I made this correlation before and I saw it. But seeing Faye in that first few moments when she like pulls out the gun and like guns down, guns out at the per- the people trying to catch her off guard mm-hmm. reminded me so much of Star Wars when they free Princess Leia. And Princess Leia has a blaster's like shooting stormtroopers while Han and Luke are staring in amazement at how what a badass she is. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a strong uh, Princess Leia energy in that regard. Um, and again, like starting with the fact that, you know, she is held at gunpoint and is just kind of like unfazed by it at one point point. and just like, eh, okay, it's this happening now. Um, she, she has all of the benefits of that archetype and discards a lot of the baggage that comes with that archetype, which is refreshing. And it's so interesting to see that for such an amazing dynamic character, I think that she has the most tragic background out of everyone aboard the Bebop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you learn why she is so obsessed with money. Uh, and uh, kind of, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about this in other episodes, I'm sure. But ultimately, she does have a very tragic and relatable reason why she needs money. It does not change the fact that she's kind of a trickster character. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the, yes, we understand why you're doing this. But also don't turn your back on Faye because she will probably kick you in the nuts and take your money. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the most amazing part though, so once she's captured and she's forced to either work at the casino for the, this mob Lord or go off mm. to the police and she agrees mm. to work on them. But when he's breaking down everything to her, he mentions poker Alice. So for folks that may not be up on their Westerns, poker Alice is a real person. And oh, really? she was an incredible like card shark who started young. And I want to say that eventually she owned like her own brothel and she kept winning money all the time oh, and wow. unbeatable. So like I was saying, they pulled real historical facts and sprinkled it through here. This is one of them. And even watching it now, I couldn't stop laughing because I made Haunted West. So of course I know who right. else is. I was like, Oh, that is so fake. <laughs> Oh my god, I, I had no idea, but that's that's even better because you're absolutely right. It, it's it's, um, like you're saying, like there, there's one point where they're they're trying to get a, a, a specific chip uh, because it has a, a a microchip inside of it, which is confusing to say. Um, but basically, the, the the scam is someone's gonna come up, they're gonna lose a bunch of money, and then uh, they're gonna tip her with this specific chip, and that chip she has to turn back in, and so she's pretending to be a dealer. She, of course, as these shows go mistake spike for being that person he he supposed to do that doesn't because it's spike and she just stops what she's doing and you know there's other things going on and she just runs after him because again there's no point between point a and b that they cannot make into a straight line and she's like <laughs> my thing is over there i'm here i'm gonna run towards it. it's like but there's you know, your, your, your life was threatened. You're supposed to be doing this. To, no, we got to get the thing. Go get the thing. <laughs> but what, getting this thing then frees her from the situation though. It's right. Logically, that makes sense. Except for all <laughs> the other stuff going on that really should be paying attention to right now. It's like, but the thing is right there and that can get the thing. I solved the problem. <laughs> and um, Spike is kind of the opposite. The reason why I played it off so is that Spike is... On some level, he's the kind of guy who does play three-dimensional chess, but can't be bothered. It's like, I could figure out a master plan to solve this, but I don't want to deal with it. So he is also a straight-line guy, but only because he's kind of lazy. 
And Faye does it because she needs to just power through problems. So it, when they work as a team, it works well, but occasionally Spike just goes off and does another thing, and Faye has no idea what's going on because she's not thinking in that level. Um, Spike is thinking on that level, and then Jed, of course, is always trying to keep all the factors in his head, uh, but realizes that someone needs to do the mundane stuff like keeping the ship together and making sure our bills are paid because I am the father of everyone in this room. <laughs> and so they, in the end, Jet and Spike apprehend Faye, and they were going to attempt to sell her ship because they didn't know anything about the chip yet mm-hmm. to earn back the money that Faye basically won from Jet. It was like 200000 and they could sell her ship for 400000 mm-hmm. And she's still there, and she's like, hey, why don't you just let me go? I got other stuff to do. And eventually, they tries to like work with them to either escape or get them to sell the chip for some money. And they discover mm-hmm. that Faye has a $6 million Wulin bounty on her and they were going to turn over to the police before they discover about the chip and how much the chip right. is worth. And then that's when we get the mob, the mob boss coming back in to negotiate a deal with them. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Wulans for a second because when I first watched this, the money made no sense to me, right? Because, and this is one of the few kind of cultural, I don't want to say missteps, but um, translations that didn't quite hit at, at first is because they're talking about million-dollar bounties. And they'll say things in episodes like, eh, it's not even worth chasing down a million. And like, how, how is that? You keep talking about how you have the money. How? But I, I keep realizing that in, in anime, when we talk about money, they're generally on the yen standard, not the dollar standard. So when they're talking about a million wulongs, that's something that's much closer to like $10,000. And it's like, oh, okay, then yes, that is kind of chump change from your perspective. Um, but it's something that every time I watch this show, I have to kind of, there's always like a half second of like, oh, right, the numbers drop, drop two zeros off the end of the numbers to get those into my understanding of how these things roughly work. Okay. That's good to know. Useless economic knowledge. I'm here for random IP law and economic knowledge. That's apparently what this contest. And you, 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 do, you do more of the actual note taking. So that's really oh. important. Also dogs, because we forgot to talk about Ayn. I was coming back to Ayn. Oh. <laughs> so the, we will pause just for Ayn. Ayn is a genius level dog that had many scientific experiments put on it. So it becomes mm-hmm. a full-blown member of the crew. Yep. So Eddie, since you wrote a little game called Pugmire, what kind of dog is Ayn? Uh, Ayn is a corgi, and uh, I knew this primarily because... There was a point in the early 2000s where literally everyone I knew who had a corgi called their corgi Ein. It was <laughs> that kind of fandom. Uh, and uh, Ein is great because you're right. Ein is kind of a genius level character um, and, and has all this interesting, cool sci-fi stuff, I assume. But also Ein is just a fucking dog, right? <laughs> like, I doesn't talk. Ein doesn't do human things, Ayn is super interested in sleeping and cuddling and eating. Those are the things that Ayn really wants to do. Also, yes, I can also help you with these other things too, but really, I just want to be a dog. So it's great because Ayn is pure, perfect plot device. We need something, a wild card to come in. You can use Ayn as that character, but otherwise Ayn is just in the background of the scenes, hanging out, doing dog stuff, and I love it. <laughs> so they discovered the value of the chip and then the crime boss they discovered the value of the chip is like 300,000 uh, Wulin but they mm-hmm. offer the crime boss to sell it back to him at a discount of only 30,000 mm-hmm. and they agree they're going to do the big exchange Spike is out in a spacesuit. the crime boss's goon is out in a spacesuit. And they were just going to do these chains. Spike was going to throw the chip and it'll slowly go to him and they'll release the grab lock on the money so Spike could grab it. And mm-hmm. of course, you can't, much how you can't trust drug dealers, you can't trust mob bosses. And once Spike released the chip, they try to kill Spike. But it goes back to the style and the slowness of the show that Spike has been watching this sort of big metal thing coming around and waits to release the chip precisely when the mob goon would have shot at him because he figured it's going to be a double cross. Mm-hmm. 
it goes back to Spike being a professional, fully trained, and a force to be reckoned with. Yep. But then you also get to see Faye in action, who manages to escape from the Bebop and her imprisonment to steal the money that Spike and Jet were going to get, and Spike and Jet recover the chip, which is worthless now. Right. And, and and that's another thing that's interesting about this show is again we've set up Spike and Jet are trying to think on a couple different levels. Um, Faye doesn't, and yet Faye generally wins. Her direct method generally does get results. So it's because that's not how this fiction should be coded, right? Like the, the 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 person who thinks straight lines is always overshadowed by the mastermind. No, the masterminds sometimes overthink their problems, and Faye's just like. I'm just going to go get the money and go. That's the plan. Uh, so obviously as the show goes on, that starts to, to that, that tension and those dynamics shift. But at this stage, it's really interesting to paint Spike and Jet so consistently as losers. And it's great because you want them to win and they just don't. I mean, they, they get the moral victories, but they're always broke. Yeah. And it, it is nice to see that though. And you also mm-hmm. eventually have Faye who joins the crew and becomes part of the team. Right. After being handcuffed to a toilet. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts about session three? No, I think that was a really good final thought. Though. Session five, the ballot of fallen angels. While pursuing the bounty on an executive of the red dragon crime syndicate, Spike confronts vicious an old enemy. Ah, vicious. And a lot of the things that we've seen before, even the series sort of starts with Spike in some sort of massive gun battle that he's bloodied and somewhat beaten from, and they show a rose, it falls to the ground. And Mm -hmm. it flashes back to where you have Spike and Jet with their beef and beans talk. And they don't really go into a lot of it. You know that Spike has mysterious past. Jet has mysterious past, somewhat dealing with his cybernetic arm. And they are friends and companions who trust each other to an extent. But the more in this episode, it really displays that they are not close friends. Like no. they have a solid working relationship that they know they can rely on each other and they're willing to go a little bit out of their comfort zones, but not too much. Yeah. Um, it's again, it's an interesting dynamic because you're right. These kinds of shows, oh, they're, they're together. It's been more than one episode, so now they're friends. And no, they're, they're, they're colleagues. Even Jet and Spike, which were together when the show started, don't share information about each other to start. Um, they're, they're just – they're stuck in a relationship where they need each other to survive. And Faye is now part of that equation, and she also needs them to survive and vice versa. But you're right. It, it's – they're not – they are friendly. They're acquaintances. Uh, but they're not, they're not, they're not friends. They don't, they don't, they trust each other tactically, but not emotionally. Maybe that's the way to describe it. Yeah. And so Spike, knowing that tries to get Jet to help by talking about the bounty, but Jet knows that whatever this is, is too dangerous. He doesn't want to do it. And Spike decides he's going to do it regardless. So then that sort of clues Jet in that somehow this is related to Spike's past, mm-hmm. but he won't tell him about it. So Jet refuses to go. It says, you're gonna have to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. which even at when I was watching it the first time that was hard to process because like you're saying as a kid I was thinking these these guys this team is a team that works together why is why is Faye and Jet not helping Spike right but Jet is like this is a dumb plan it, it endangers the crew okay, that's what I, I'm making Jet sound like he's boring but he's genuinely not um, because he is very much the voice of reason. And I think Jet's one of those characters that when you're a kid, you kind of go, oh, Jet's kind of the stick in the mud. He won't, like I said, he won't go after them. But as you get an adult, you kind of go, no, 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 yeah, that Jet's making a lot of sense here. <laughs> it's he, like, uh, we really do need to pay, them, pay the bills. We really do need to get the money. <laughs> he unfortunately has the, the Cyclops role from the X-Men yes. animated show. Because everyone wants to be Wolverine, but Wolverine doesn't keep the team together. Right. Yes. Or I can even go back to a, a specific example this morning. Zora 
was singing from the soundtrack of Rent because she loves to sing and she loves musicals. And she was singing about how they can't pay last, last year's rent and how they're artists and all these other great things. And she was singing it. And I just off in, the, in her lyric came as how will we pay last year's rent. And I as a girl turned and stopped and said, you get a job. <laughs> Cause Growing up, I liked Rent. I was with the artist. Now, as a, a working adult, I'm thinking, you people were freeloaders that should have <laughs> gone out and done the work and then done the other thing on the side. Come on! But I'm a crusty, a crusty old-timer now. <laughs> so what you're saying is, on a long enough timeline, everyone becomes jet black. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Um, so, <laughs> Spike actually goes to investigate. You get you get to see more glimpses of his past. He sort of encounters some older, some older people he used to have relationships with. And they're like, where did you go? You disappeared. And through the course of it, he's, you get more glimpses of it, but the crux of the entire episode is when it comes down to the fight with vicious, vicious, mm-hmm. the person that killed the red dragon crime Lord jet discovers a little bit more pieces about what's going on, but not really a full story. Faye goes after vicious because of the high bounty and he gets captured. Mm-hmm. And in the end, Jet shows up to sort of help, which is the reason Spike doesn't get killed. Because you have the end scene where Vicious is fighting with a sword, Spike with a gun, and Vicious sort of stabbed Spike, and Spike has shot Vicious, and then it sort of breaks apart. And that is sort of like where it's left at. So you have a, a sense of like the hatred and dynamic they have going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this great moment as as uh, Spike's flying out a window, um, and you're seeing glimpses of his past but we as the audience all we hear is music we don't get any dialogue we don't get any context for these things so we don't know what all this stuff means at this stage of watching the show but they all pay off later um it but it's enough for this episode to know that he is remembering bits and pieces of his past now uh and then it is capstoned by him like again we talk about the dynamic they have uh, he wakes up, he's covered in bandages, Faye's, you know, he, the music turns into humming and realizes it's Faye humming. Um, and she, uh, she makes a comment on how she's been watching the past few days. And Spike kind of stares at her for a while and she's talking and then finally goes, your humming is terrible. <laughs> and she hits up with a pillow and storms off. <laughs> it's like, you wake up, this woman's watching for three days and the first thing you do is mock her singing and just like, that's, that's the dynamic of this crew. <laughs> Uh, uh, any last thoughts on session five? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pick up our pace if we're yeah gonna yeah we gotta pick our pace yeah hit, three more to go hit our time. Um, in case I haven't mentioned it yet, they've also I think by now have the greatest member on the crew, which is Ed, who they Radical, could not yeah. have mm-hmm. done a lot of their stuff with without Ed, who is like mm-hmm. the computer hacker genius extraordinaire. Yes, uh, sadly, um, Ed's one of the characters that. Uh, only a couple of episodes are, are Ed even relevant, relevant focused, and they're not part of the main thread. So I, I think we kind of skipped over those, which is a kind of a shame, but Ed certainly is the uh, babbling computer genius um, who, of course, is immediately best friends with Ayn and vice versa. Um, Ed, Ed is amazing and wonderful and one of the two anime characters that share my name that I like. <laughs> so who's the other one? Um, uh, Ed, Edward Ulrich from uh, Full Metal Alchemist. The show I've not seen. All right, um, session eight, Waltz for Venus. While the crew hunts down a Venetian mob, Spike meets Rocco, who is on the run from the same mob the crew is tracking for stealing a very rare and valuable plant, which he plans to sell for pe- to pay for surgery to restore his sister's eyesight. Oh my god, I have so many emotions about this. I chose this um, episode because it is in some senses it is incredibly funny and it is incredibly sad at the same time, which is mm-hmm. the essence of what Cowboy Bebop is. Mm-hmm. But also it's someone that idealizes Spike and that is a fun thing to see Spike have to engage with someone that actually sort of wants to be like him 
mm-hmm. and Spike not wanting anyone to have to walk down that path. One thing that really struck me watching this again now is how Rocco just straddles the line of being offensive because mm-hmm. he says all of the things that Asian people were get frustrated by being said to them. Uh, Cause he's like, you know, you should keep your Kung Fu, you know, all that stuff. Um, and it, it, it works because a spike does prove himself to be a martial artist before Rocco starts this line. And secondly, the fact that it's a Japanese show, it, it, it has some strong, we know this is a thing. We're going to kind of play with this and run with it a bit. Um, it's, a, it's a great example of, of when, when uh, diverse voices actually are able to kind of talk about the experiences they have. And it's like, okay, I, I kind of see where you're going with this and it's fun. Um, and Rocco kind of plays along the line of like, he just doesn't understand. He's trying to, to, to find a way in to have this conversation and just keeps doing it the absolute wrong way every time. Oh, agreed. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the eyesight subplot. Mm-hmm. Uh, because <laughs> I was prepared to hate this. I was prepared, okay, here's where I get mad. Here's where I'm going to have my rant. Uh, because the whole thing is the brothers trying to get the magic MacGuffin that makes a disabled person able to get They'll be happy. And right near the end, when they don't get the plant, they actually have a conversation with the sister and she's like, yeah, I don't care. I mean, it would have been nice to have my eyesight back, but I'm not less of a person from it. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I was like, oh, be Bob. I knew you, I knew you couldn't hurt me. I love you. Um, <laughs> and think because, about that. They did this in the nineties. Like I know, I know. Right. And it's like, man, people, 2022 shows can't get this right. And yet here's a show 30 years previously and from a different country that's just like, oh yeah, by the way, people could also be happy. Um, and it ultimately, it, it wasn't even like she was, I mean, she's a little marginalized for, from a plot structure standpoint, but it comes down to her brother took it on himself to make all the decisions on her behalf and never actually talked to her about it. And the, the, the show does not shy away from the fact is that is why this happened. Um, so Rocco very much comes across as well-meaning kind of a himbo, you know, uh, it, it's like, uh, he, he, he means well, but he just doesn't get it right. And at the end, it's like, you know, we feel bad for him when he dies because he is well-meaning. He, you know, he, he, he's trying to be a good person. Um, but there's definitely strong, like if you'd had a conversation, maybe none of this would have happened. <laughs> But it was it was good. I'm glad they actually ended on that note because because again, noir is built on miscommunication, right? That, that's why the genre is the way it is. So it makes perfect sense that all this stems around miscommunication. But I'm glad they actually painted the other side. And it's like I'm happy with who I am. You know, I, I'm as a salesperson, would I love to have my hearing back? Absolutely. But I know that's not going to happen, and I'm not less of a person because I have hearing loss. Uh, so I'm glad to see that that. Ah, oh, this show's so good. And it is nice that for kids, they had the sister sort of summarize that about Rocco, saying that he is a, a good meaning person that makes a lot of bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And it was also Indeed. telling of Spike, though, that Spike sort of took some responsibility for the sister after Rocco dies. Like that is showing more and more of his character. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see Spike caring about the situation in a different way. But again, it didn't come across as in, I, the able-bodied person, will help you mirror, you know, disabled person. Um, it really has strong, okay, fine, I'll do this if you just leave me alone energy. And it evolves <laughs> into something more. Um, but generally, the first half of the episode is just like, I will do this, but please stop following me. Um <laughs> And then it's like, oh, I feel bad because this kid died, and I, maybe I should just. And I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not stated, but you definitely get the vibe of like, maybe if I had just been stronger, pushed him away, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But also, if I didn't, maybe he would have done this on his own and died anyway. So like, it's it's, it's a neat little catch twenty two for Spike to be in, 
and uh, he doesn't handle moral quandaries well. Um, so he kind of just again they say, "What's the path of resistance?" I'll just tell the sister and see what I can do. So it's 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 it, it, the whole time was like the, you could see the landmines on the field, and it just Bebop just navigates them pretty deftly. So if anyone has played Mass Effect before. You should be able to tell that the at least one writer or designer for Mass Effect watched Cowboy Bebop because there's a subplot about a character who becomes a f- big major fan of Commander Shepard who has a similar arc as Rocco. Oh, I had made that connection, but now I can kind of see it. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Session 8? No, I think I, I've... I've done my obligatory disability rant. Uh, session 20 appear on the floor. <clears throat> Spike is targeted by a deranged, seemingly indestructible assassin named Mad Pierre after accidentally witnessing the killer in action. I chose this because of the circus and the <laughs> fact that it is a totally random event. Like, this is the most TTRPG <laughs> adventure in this entire <laughs> series, I am a player character, minding my own fracking business, and this thing happens around me, and then I'm drawn into this plot. And I love it. Yeah, and like, I mean, even the lines are just like, I threw this NPC together, right? Like, hello, gentlemen, I have come to take your lives, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> what's my motivation? I'm evil. That's my motivation. Deal with it. I didn't have a scenario for tonight, but we're going to do this. <laughs> And the French. Why? Well, I don't know. I just read it. Um, I, I did want to remark. Um, uh, we talked before a little bit about the multicultural stuff. Um, uh, Japanese uh, literature also um, is uh, uh, has a strong interest in French literature as well. Uh, like uh, they they're really into uh, Arsene Lupin uh, and I mean Lupin the Third. Obviously, a long running show. For example, there's uh, also so, a great series on Netflix about it. Oh God, yes! Uh, if you haven't seen Lupin on Netflix, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Diop is amazing. Uh, but um, so they do scatter French through the show the same way that they scatter English through the show. Uh, you know, although this episode is a really good way to see. Oh, it's not just English they're doing this with. Um, and they treat French culture in a lot of the same way they treat American and English culture in this show, which is that it's respectful, but also through a very distinctive lens. So you get this kind of weird, mad French circus thing that very much evokes, you know, uh, the uh, Grand Gogol and uh, other kind of 19th century French literature. Uh, but it's also, right, it seems so completely random, and it is. It, it's very much just Spike has a bad day. That's the episode. But it, it's, it, it, was, it was amusing to see because it's like, well, if we're going to make this random episode, let's just crank it up. Let's just, just push the edges out. Let's see how, how weird we can get without breaking the setting. And it, boy, howdy, it does it. <laughs> Like um, uh, uh, Ed just babbling for like 30 seconds while typing on a computer. And it's like, you know, it's really hard to do. And it's like, okay, so how long is it? Oh, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) What was all that about? It's it's just Ed being Ed. You know, it's so great. And I, I literally don't have anything else to say about it other than a march of mechanical animals is an astounding thing to see and it was great but i mean again it goes back to my comic book analogy right like you can see this as the plot for like a silver age batman comic right you know it's just (laughs) stuff happens and you fight it because you're there um and, and it's but it works because we have i think partially because it's episode 20 yeah we're now in the we're now hitting the heavy uh, drama of the character arcs. And so, I mean, this is like, 
uh, right. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting close to learning more about Faye. We've already seen Spike. We've already seen um, Jet go through some stuff. Um, we've learned a little bit about Ayn's background. So like everyone's kind of these tortured pasts and, and they had some really tough, dramatic decisions to make. And so it's perfect for a TV show to say, here's a week of just nonsense. Here you go. And it's perfectly timed, and, perfectly placed. And, and, and it doesn't, the characters aren't wrong. The characters are still acting exactly as they are, but now they're in this different environment. And you'll notice I, all the episodes I specifically chose primarily did not deal with the meta plot. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to give more of an overview of the essence of the show and have people engage with it than potentially spoil that what we may discuss next episode or to spoil it in general. Like if you right. want to go back and watch it, I would say go watch the ending of it before you listen to us talk about it next week. Well, we'll probably go into it, but it is right, an amazing show to the, watch. You can't avoid it. Yeah. And I could avoid it this time. And I did it on purpose mm-hmm. because I wanted people just to see the show and like ride with these characters. And that's why a lot of the episodes are definitely the more singular focused ones, but it highlights their personalities and how they engage and how they do things which would then become indicative for when we talk about them next week and the interpretations that are presented by Netflix. That's actually, no, it was a very smart decision, but also I'm, I'm also <laughs> noting that I can think of at least three or four more episodes that you could have also picked. Right. So it's like, it's not like it's, these are the only six you can extract. There's, there's a lot more that you could have pulled. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's that kind of show. It is more episodic than not. Yeah. But you also limit it. We also limit it to six episodes. I could say, let's just watch half the series. Right. No, I will watch all of it because every, every, I mean, I'm sure if I sat down and watched them back to back and really analyze them, some episodes that are kind of like, eh. But I mean, as a piece, it's just really hard to find fault. Um, any last thoughts on this session? No, we need to, to wrap this up. It's last one. We're going to make this, we're going to make this one rival our end of season shows. Um, session 22. Cowboy Funk, a terrorist known as the Teddy Bomber, has been using explosive hidden in teddy bears to bring down high-rise buildings to protest humanity's excess. Spike attempts to stop him, but constantly runs afoul of Cowboy Andy, a fellow bounty hunter who is far more similar to Spike than either would care to admit. So is it bad that this time around when I was hearing Teddy's speech, I was like, no, I can, I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> so we need to the show bring down capitalism and all this overcesses. And it's like, uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this, buddy. <laughs> the show is ahead of its time and on point for certain things. Right. So I've got to start this though by saying, before we get into it, watching this, I'd forgotten about the tick, but I had not forgotten about the mad bomber who bombs at midnight. Yes. And I kept waiting for the teddy bear bomber to say it. And it's no, that's the tick. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Because it, 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 there is strong tick. I mean, again, when you pair it with uh, uh, Pierre Lafoe, I mean, it's there again, that strong, almost silver age comic book feel to it. But this one, as opposed to here's a weird thing that happened. It's, Here's a weird thing that happened, but it's building off of things that we have seen. And it's so great to pair this ludicrous villain with someone who is a ludicrous American stereotype and also weirdly a lot like Spike. Like almost the same character model except different color hair. Yeah, yeah. But like I was half expecting it to be like, hey, y'all. I mean, it's, it's... so very near the 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 Texan stereotype, uh, and it's great. Um, and actually, this reminds me we we didn't talk about the TV show that they watch. Oh, that's right. Um, because because this is the '90s, they get their information from a basically a cable station that's specifically geared to bounty hunters, which is hilarious. Uh, but we see snippets of the show of two presenters talking about the various bounties and it's amazing. Again, it's, it's so peak American television because like uh, the, the one presenter has like uh, a coat on that like doesn't button in the front. So it kind of just hangs over her breasts. Uh, and you know, she, she says funny things and it's like, this is just 
American television. It's <laughs> kind of stuff that we do, sadly. Um, and it's here talking about people you need to find and arrest for money. It's it's such a it's a weirdly biting satire of television that's just kind of a throwaway gag in the show. <laughs> and they're in full cowboy yes. garb doing like the whole shtick with somewhat accents and and everything. It is and it has like uh, a, a morning radio show vibes of like every time they say something you have like a pure pure sound effects and stuff. It's it's ridiculous. It is incredibly also reminiscent of Twin Peaks where they have the show inside of the show. Oh yeah. The the soap opera they're all obsessed with. Yeah. I forgot the name of it right now. Yeah, same, but I remember it. All right. So the thing is, it is great to see that Spike is always on point and he's like tracked down the teddy bear bomber, was about to capture him in the first two or three minutes of the show. And Cowboy Andy breaks in with a horse. Like, I want, <laughs> I want to refocus on the horse. Everywhere Cowboy Andy shows up, he's on a horse. Like, <laughs> any scene, Cowboy Andy, horse. And you even have Faye go, horse? <laughs> Escalators, starships. Yes. Um, yes, he goes up an escalator on the horse. It is a magnificent to watch. And then you get then you have Ed sort of discover a little bit about the history, how he sort of joined the YMCA. Oh my god. Uh, it's sort it's of like, like a Batman Western Cowboy Bat- Association. Yeah. Yes. But was kicked out for like being an ass. And you get the constant reinforcement of like how bad and irritating this person is which is even more biting as it is a over-the-top American stereotype. It is just like beautifully done throughout the entire part. And, and that's even one the, of the things... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, it's like the reason why I think it works is because we've established this is a setting where just being a bounty hunter isn't enough. Being a bounty hunter with flair, because this is a profession that has media attention associated with it. And so being a bounty hunter with a gimmick is actually a viable career path. And so we have a guy who is committed to a gimmick and just commits to it way too hard and has a horse in space. Cause that's what you do when your gimmick is you're the cowboy guy. <laughs> Until he's effectively beaten by spike. And then they end the episode on the most painful cringeworthy thing, but it is so unfortunately American white American. He appropriates someone else's culture. (laughs) Yes. He comes out as a samurai. (laughs) And still on the horse. (laughs) I want to say that it is better now than when they wrote it, but it's not. Uh, but again, like any other show I'd watch that and be like, ooh, that's awkward. But the fact is a Japanese show, a Japanese crew made this, it, it just becomes funny. It's like, look at this white guy appropriating our culture. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> and it is. So, any final thoughts on Session um, 22, Cowboy Andy? Um, I just, I just kind of want to iterate that like, uh, this is a show that shifts between tones so smoothly. Um, I mean, when Pulley shows these episodes in isolation, it's, it's easy to go, this is the funny one. This is the weird one. This is the dark one. Um, but it sometimes misses the fact that it leavens in the comedy and the drama inside those episodes really well too. I mean, like, this whole, the whole premise of this episode, Cowboy Funk, is, is ridiculous, but also it, it's kind of glossing over the fact that the Teddy Bomber is a genuinely disturbed individual. Um, and the show does not lean away from that. Uh, and it's, in fact, it's Cowboy Andy who only sees things in through this very narrow viewpoint that actually causes most of the problems, where you're right, if it hadn't been for Cowboy Andy... Spike could have walked in, talked this guy down, gotten the reward, and the show would be over in five minutes. Uh, so it's and, and like you know things like um, uh, 
the, the bebop itself, the ship we have to talk about, um, it's a tiny ship. And it's one of the few shows I've seen where diegetically the ship is supposed to be small. And we actually feel that because a lot of times in, in live action, uh, by the nature of trying to put cameras onto a set, you have to make the sets relatively large. And so we talk about the confined spaces. It's really hard to film in set spaces and make it engaging and meaningful. Uh, the Expanse manages to cover it, but even then it still kind of has to fudge a few things. Um, so because it's an animated show, they don't have that constraint. And so you see like the same two or three rooms the entire time we're in the Bebop, but they're always shown in different states and ways. And you see the people live there. And so there's, there's stuff happening always in there, but it does not feel like a large ship. You, you recognize these people are on top of each other constantly and therefore constantly getting each other's nerves. So you get this wonderful balance of humor as they snipe at each other, but also you feel the real tension of they need to get the heck out of this ship. So some of these episodes are really the whole premise is just, I need to get out for a bit. And you believe that. It's not just a, a, a ham-fisted way of getting them into trouble. It also ends up being a way to get them in trouble. But the show takes efforts to go, this is a stressful way to live when you have a ship that was designed to maybe hold two people, now has four and a dog. <laughs> so when Faye's like, I'm going to go take my ship and just go off for a bit. It's like, okay, I can see why that happens. Um, Spike's like, oh, I was just flying around for a while. It's like, they, they don't seem as contrived. And part of that is because the tone's able to shift around. We laugh at the points where we're going, oh, they're on top of each other. But then we also, in the back of our heads, are going, oh, but that's actually a real problem. But yeah, yeah. that show's great. Any other final thoughts? Because we are a little bit over our point. Yeah, it's fine. Um, I, I, I we, we, we talked about it, but um, we are going to next cover uh, the live action version. Uh, and that will be uh, session one, Cowboy Gospel, session two, Venus Pop, session three, Dog Star Swing, and session seven, Galileo Hustle. Because this is a Netflix produced show, um, it's modern television, so it's much more serialized. Uh, so I picked the first three to kind of just get all the, the setup in because you kind of need to get that all in a chunk. Um, and then I'm going to jump to closer to the end so you can kind of see how things are uh, evolving. Um, but it'll be interesting because I, I watched the live action show after a few years of watching the anime. I had not watched them this close back to back. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how the things compare and contrast. Because I know for me, I hadn't seen Bebop in at least a decade and I watched the mm. live action show. So I had a, a an opinion about it that I will not discuss until mm. next week. Yes. Um, if folks are looking for you online or to buy your merch, where could they find those things? Uh, you can find me online on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. Uh, you can find my website at Pugsteady.com. Or, or if you are a fan of dog-related things, uh, you can check out my website, realmsofpugmire.com, and buy my stuff. Awesome. Uh, if folks are looking for me, you can find me at darker underscore Hugh on Twitter. You can join the Discord where I'm talking about prepping for games and more games I want to run. And if you're looking to buy my stuff, you could probably go to the Indie Press Revolution, Chaosium, or our Talisorian game sites. Well, and with that, uh, we'll see you all next week. Let's jam. <laughs>